Hey guys, Andrew Krauss, InventRight co-founder here. We're going to do a full hour of question and answer on licensing your products, selling your ideas for royalties. Um, if somebody doesn't need to be everybody, just one or two of you could type in yes if you could hear me just to confirm. One time I did one of these and I realized my mic wasn't working and uh, people were texting me on my phone, um, other people in the company. So if I could get a yes from you guys that you can hear me. So far I haven't gotten one. So I'll just sit here until I get a yes. I'm getting any yet, so can you guys hear me? There we go, thank you. Thank you guys. All right, that's enough. We're good, we're good, we're good. I got some thumbs ups too. All right, so um, Stephen Key and myself and our company has been coaching and mentoring inventors for the last 21 years to license their products. And so when you license a product, it's the big company's money, it's their workforce, and it's their existing distribution. So you don't need to raise money. You don't need to hire employees because they already have sales, marketing, manufacturing, advertising, all these different departments. And they might have you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 80 products, hundreds of products. And they're going to plug your product into their product line. So it's a machine. And when, you're, when you license a product to a company, which is basically renting or leasing it for money, um, for every unit they sell, you make money, um, your product is their product. And now your product is with a big company. So it's like you're a big company. And so if they're in 30,000 stores, you're in 30,000 stores. So it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, people go on like shows like Shark Tank and they say, you know, people get excited watching that show. Oh, do they get the money or don't they get the money? And I'm like, wow, licensing is way better than that. Because you got a shark and, you know, they're going to be, you know, giving you the money. And then you got to start a business. You have to have, you have to create all that distribution from scratch. I don't care how well connected they are. They're not as well connected as a big company that is in 30,000 stores. It's not the same thing. So you're starting a company from scratch with no distribution, and you're a one SKU, one product company, retailers don't like one SKU, one product companies. So when you license to a big company, now you know that they have uh, uh, salespeople, sales reps, manufacturers reps, that's what I was looking for, um, is in there maintaining that relationship. They're not just getting it into the stores, but they're able to keep it in the stores. And that's very hard to do. You know, and you're not going to get the face time of a small company with one product or two products. You know, so it's very beneficial. So if people watch Shark Tank, oh, do they think it's all about the money and it's not. It's it's about running the business and you know, you have to create distribution from scratch, you have to hire employees. And when you have a machine that has the money, the workforce and the distribution there, and you just license it to that company, it's way more attractive, way sexier if you ask me, um, than anything you'd ever see on Shark Tank. Now, Shark Tank's great TV, because it's like you get people that don't know anything about business. They're like, do you get money? Don't you get the money? Or even if you know about business, it's kind of entertaining. But that's entertainment. We're about you really approaching real-life companies and licensing your products. So um, just thought I'd ramble on that for a little bit. Uh, okay, uh, t so type your questions into the chat box. I'll get to as many as I can. Uh, Tanya, I missed the contest. I'm still at a standstill. I feel overwhelmed. I think I have a very marketable idea but so many questions about how to go about it. Um, so, I mean, yeah, when you have one of our coaches guiding you along, uh, holding your hand through the whole thing, 
Um, yeah, it's a little bit easier than being on your own. Now, Tanya, I would recommend that you, which is free, you can watch our YouTube show. We have a ton of YouTube shows that will clarify a lot of stuff for you. Got to take good notes and think it through. Um, but it is nice to talk to somebody who says, oh, for your product, do this. And that's what our coaching does. Um, I can't do that in a live Q&A session, but I can definitely answer a lot of questions about um, licensing, and I'm more than happy to do that. So let me try to answer your question about feeling overwhelmed. You said specifically, and I think I have a very remarkable idea, so many questions on how to go about it. So let's, let's break down some of the, the main steps here that, that we coach our students to do. And no, we can't look at your product and evaluate that specific product, but we can give you an overview. One of the first things you need to do is you need to study the marketplace. So if you have a barbecue spatula, you need to understand all the barbecue spatulas on the market. You can do that using Google Images and, and Google Shopping and Amazon. And you look at all those products and you kind of go, well, there's those that do that and those that do that. Prices range from here to there. You need to know that. You need to know all the players too. So, but here's the mistake people make. They think, well, I'm going to study. I'm going to look for products. I'm going to try to, because my goal, they're, they're thinking, is to prove there's nothing like it. It's never your goal to prove there's nothing like it. You're trying to see, does my product fit in with these other barbecue spatulas, okay? So if you have a barbecue spatula, you've got you to gotta look at all those products. And you could study all the barbecue spatulas in about four hours. You could look at that marketplace. Now, you couldn't study all the barbecue products. That would be overwhelming because there's a lot of stuff. There. There's smokers, there's this, there's that. So I always use the barbecue spatula as an example. But one of the first things you need to do is you, you think it's a very marketable idea, but the question is, did you really study the marketplace? And by studying the marketplace and looking at all these other barbecue spatulas, you're probably going to start to get little pieces that you can use later. So, for example, you see how they're marketing barbecue spatulas. Well, when you do your cell sheet or your video cell sheet, quite often you just do a cell sheet, 8.5 by 11 PDF that you email. It's a one-page advertisement of your product. So when you're doing that one-page advertisement of your product, it's probably going to be fairly similar in a lot of ways as to the way they're marketing other barbecue specialists. When you're looking at all these products, you're not only seeing how does your product fit in the marketplace, and you're not trying to prove nothing like it exists, because if there's things somewhat like it, that proves there's a market. That's a big misperception. Like you might, well, there's eight barbecue spatulas, but, but mine has this extra little thing. And instead of saying, well, I don't know if that's enough, you should say, well, that's fantastic. Because when I'm right alongside one of those eight products that are more or less exactly the same, I have a little point of difference. And a company is going to recognize that. And they love making little incremental changes that give them a little edge up. Now, you can license dramatically different things, too. And I know a lot of you have dramatically different things. But, and by the way, never say there's nothing like it. So one of the things you want to do is study the marketplace. And while you're doing that, what I'm saying is you're going to figure out, like, what is your, my marketing piece going to look like? So studying the marketplace, doing your marketing piece, filing your provisional patent, and reaching out to companies. If I want to boil it down to the basic basics. Now, sometimes people get overwhelmed with prototypes. A lot of times you can just do a virtual prototype. If it's fairly obvious that they can make it. Then who said you need to go spend five grand on a prototype? Sometimes you want to cannibalize something you found at the store. A lot of times for our students, what we do is we do a virtual prototype that shows the product. Because what we always say at InventRight is what you're truly selling is the benefit of your product. You're not selling your patent or your prototype. You're selling the benefit of the product. So you do the marketing. You show the benefit. You don't need to have a finished, beautiful production prototype to do that. 
And companies will not get mad at you and say, oh, you don't have that? Oh, you fooled me. Like they never say that. People think, it the, they don't say it, most inventors, but in the back of their mind, they're thinking that. And don't think that because it's not true. I just realized my chair is not at the right height here. There we go. Um, I don't want to be that short. <laughs> I'm 5'9". I'm not tall, but I'm not that short. Um, okay. So study the marketplace. Create your marketing materials. File a provisional patent. Reach out to companies using LinkedIn and using the phone. Are there details within all those? Yes. Do I understand how you might feel overwhelmed doing those things? Yes. Can we help you with our coaching program if you can afford it? Yes. And we also have an academy program that's group coaching that would definitely give you all that stuff. Maybe if you can't afford the one-on-one -on -one coaching, you do the group coaching. Or maybe you just watch all our YouTube shows, piece it together, buy our book, One Simple Idea, which is like, I don't know, it's 13, 18 bucks, I forget. It goes up and down in price, 15, something like that. Buy that book, One Simple Idea, the yellow book on Amazon, and maybe try it yourself. But you got to get out of this state of overwhelm. You know, it's, it's not always, it's not necessarily a completely bad thing because if you're overwhelmed, to me, that means you're actively thinking about taking action. That's not all bad. That's a good thing. If you're feeling overwhelmed, you're actively really trying to do it. A lot of inventors, they'll come up with an idea. They're very, you know, oh, this is so great. You wake up with a smile on your face in the morning because you're so excited about this idea. And then they easily get distracted. They come up with another one, another one, another one. And every time they come back to actually working on it, which is what we're all about, they get overwhelmed and then they just go, well, it's more fun to just invent stuff. So I, I won't reach out to any companies. Or people will get a false sense of moving forward by throwing money at a patent attorney or a prototyper. And it's truly a false sense of moving forward. One of the big things that we teach is to get a $75 provisional patent. Don't spend 10 grand on a patent when you don't know there's interest. That's nuttiness. Uh, and I realize a lot of you have filed patents, and that's perfectly fine. Um, but if you don't end up licensing that thing, that was a very costly wall plaque. You know, it really was. And it's not required to do licensing deals. Uh, very few of our students, uh, I, I don't know the exact percentage, a very small percentage of our students um, need to have filed patents. They just file a provisional patent and license it. Now, plenty of people come on board with us having filed a patent on something else that they're not working on or the current product they're working on. And that's, and that's fine. But in the future, if you haven't been on one of these shows or been watching us, don't go filing a patent every time you come up with an idea. It's not, it's not necessary. Companies don't require an issued patent. Um, they don't. They really don't. A few might, but those aren't the right ones, to be honest with you. Um, okay. Jason, if a company shows interest, what steps do they usually take to guide it to a contract? <clears throat> do I wait for them to mention a prototype to send? Will DRTV companies pay to create a better version of the manufacturing? Okay, so the first part is, if a company shows interest, what steps do they take to guide it to the contract? And the answer is not nearly enough, not nearly enough. The reason why I see, I talk to a lot of inventors that aren't our students, haven't been watching our show, or are students of ours, um, and they tell me their experiences about how they got interest and then it fell through. When I asked them about the details, I realized they were literally expecting the company to guide them. That's not how it works. And people trip out on that. They're like, well, Andrew, I'm not going to tell this big company what to do. Well, first of all, it's not a big company. It's a person, just like you and me. It's a marketing manager quite often that you're talking to, or it could be somebody else in the company. And all they're trying to do is, is first of all, they're very busy. You're something extracurricular for them. 
Now, if your product is tremendously successful, then they could get congratulated for it. If it fails, they could go, well, Bob, you know, why do you, this product was a failure? You know, so they're taking a risk for you. So you need to realize that. But they don't do licensing deals every day. Maybe the company's done 10 licensing deals. But you're talking to Bob and Bob has been with the company a year and a half and he's the one that liked your product. So he's your Superman. He's your one that you want to you want to um, cozy up to and, and hit it off with. And he's never done a licensing deal before. So it's not like they're doing licensing deals every day and they have this formal process, you know, and it's very evident sometimes what they ask you. So you're responsible more for moving the deal forward than they are. Deals, I see inventors doing deals, not our students, but doing deals that fizzle out all the time because they expected the company to push it forward. By asking certain questions and guiding the conversation a certain direction, that's how you get deals done. I'll give you a classic example. Sometimes companies say, see mail back. Send me your patent, send me your prototype after they see the sell sheet. And most inventors that aren't our students would just go ahead and do that. I would never do that. Not for in any circumstance. You always want to get on the phone and talk to them. Now, here's the fascinating thing that we've learned over 21 years. Literally half the time they do that. They don't do that that often. But when they do it, half the time they ask for a patent and a prototype, they don't even mention it when you get on a phone call with them because you say you want to talk to them. They didn't know how to start the conversation. I'm not saying that's the case every time, but if you just do whatever they ask, you're not doing things in the proper order for you and for moving the deal forward and for them to be honest with you. You're trying to get them to focus on the products and discussions with the product, gather different deal points that you can use to do the deal later. You lose all that leverage when you send them your provisional patent and send them a prototype. And a lot of you don't have a prototype. So you want to get on the phone and talk with them. That's the one piece that I'll say is always get on the phone and talk with them. Okay. Um, so, you know, Jason says, do I wait for them to mention a prototype to send? Yes. You don't even bring it up. You talk about the product. You talk about its benefits. You talk about where it's going to be sold, what they would do with it, any of their concerns. And then you address those things. You talk about the product. You know, it's not the prototype. The prototype is not a product. It's a prototype. It's not the product. It's not the benefits, because that's what they're selling. Benefits, not your prototype. They're going to be selling the, pro the, the, the product. So, um, yeah, you do. You don't even bring up a prototype on those first calls. You know, you don't bring it up at all. And quite often, you don't need one. That, see, there's something shocking. Um, so for, for uh, Tanya, earlier, she's, like, stressed, doesn't know how to start, doesn't know how to go about these things. A lot of people have these thoughts and they have thoughts on their own because they haven't been watching a YouTube show or they're not a student of ours. And they're thinking, well, well, I have to have a prototype, right? I can't try to reach out to companies without a prototype. No, you don't. <laughs> so a lot of people come to a lot of false conclusions. Um, your last part, you got like three questions in there, Jason. You're being greedy. Um, the last part of your question, will DRTV companies, those are infomercial companies, guys, pay to create a better version for manufacturing? Yes and no. Um, DRTV companies are some of the worst for doing full development on the product. Um, they will ask you to do more than a lot of other uh, manufacturers. So some of them will and some of them won't. Um, but, you know, if they do, at least you have interest. You know, you don't have to have that before reaching out to them. At least you have interest now. And you're like, oh, okay, maybe I need to spend a grand making something, you know, getting something made that I can send to them so they can send that to China. But a lot of times... You can just give them enough information. They have enough information to get some quotes in China to see if it can be made cost-effectively. Or in the U.S., 
I mean, I'm just being honest, guys. A lot of stuff is still made in China. I'm not saying that's my preference. It's just a fact. A lot of companies, if you said to them, I don't want this thing made in China, they'd be like, okay, bye. You know, and other ones are like, oh, yeah, no, we make this type of product here and this type of product in Italy and this one in the U.S. and this one in China. You know, but that's your decision to make. But you have to be realistic about that. A lot of stuff is still made over there. Um, Nick said... Uh, hi, Andrew. Thanks for your help. You're a star. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate that. Um, Sam. Hi, Andrew. Roughly how much time should I spend searching through patents and prior art, assuming I have a simple kitchen gadget? Also, does InventRight do one-on-one -on -one coaching in any way to help with that? Yeah, that's that's what we've been doing for 21 years. We do one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, let's see. How much time should I spend going through the patents of prior art? Okay, I have a kitchen gadget. A kitchen gadget is usually not important. So your first thing you do, uh, Sam, is not a prior art search, not a patent search, but you do a market search. That's what you do first. Whenever you come up with an idea, never, ever spend two seconds doing a patent search right up front. Always do a market search. Because what is or isn't in the marketplace tells you a lot. Tells you if things are selling. Maybe there's three companies selling something similar. Oh, there's a market for this, right? Oh, nobody's selling anything like this. Hmm. Okay, and that that can be fine too, but it tells you a lot. It tells you way more than what's patented. So when you look at patents and you find something similar, you know, it just means all that means is somebody threw a bunch of money at attorneys so they can pay for their kids' college education. Doesn't mean the product makes sense doesn't mean it's marketable, doesn't mean that they could be manufactured at a reasonable price. It doesn't mean they have claims in the patent that give it any decent protection whatsoever. There's a lot of patent attorneys out there that will write very weak patents and they don't care and they won't tell their client that. You know, and they'll have patents that are weak to junk. I've talked to intellectual property professionals. I think this is a little bit too much of an exaggerate. They say that up to 80% of patents are weak to junk. So, if you see other patents that are an issue, look through the claims, read the claims, and see what they're actually protecting. You're like, oh, with that claim one, they're just protecting that hook. Oh, that's not a problem. Oh, claim two, they're protecting that hinge. Well, that's not a problem for mine. And so don't just look at the picture. Read through the claims, and quite often it's not an issue. So then you're, a lot of people listening are like, well, then people can get around mine. No. If you think about all the variations and workarounds improvements and you put those into your provisional patent and later your patent, um, people can't get around you. And so then you're thinking, well, Andrew, why, why doesn't everybody do that? They don't. Uh, some inventors have this messed up attitude, even some companies, like, oh, here's the invention, just patent it. And the attorney wants to ask them some questions. What's well, your job? Just get a patent. Just do that. That's messed up. I was going to use a swear word there. <laughs> That's your fault as an inventor. When you ever, whenever you work with an attorney to do a patent or it, in our cases, in our students' case, when our students are filing a provisional, we always guide them to think about all the variations and workarounds and improvements. That's 80% of filing a good provisional patent. But inventors don't do that when they go to patent attorneys. And some patent attorneys, a lot of them, don't press the inventor to do it because they don't want the inventor to say, well, that's your job. You file it. They're like, they take on this attitude like, well, okay, I'll just do whatever I can with what the inventors send me. Now, a good attorney, which there are good patent attorneys out there, will push you. What's the other variations? Because the, the, the attorney is not, the patent attorney is not an inventor. You need to realize this. They are not an inventor. Don't, you're the inventor. You need to give them all the variations for that product. You've been studying this thing. 
They're, they're not a marketer. They're not an inventor. That's your job. So when I say that you can work around a lot of patents because they're weak, don't think they can work around yours if you do that. What I'm saying is most people don't do that. They don't take a close look at all the variations. So when you come with this variation, you're like, oh, all these claims, that, that's just not violating. I'm not going to be violating any of these claims with the way I do my invention. Okay, so, um, but yeah, we, we do have one-on-one -on -one coaching that will guide you through the whole thing. Um, uh, Ola, Ola White. Uh, okay, so I finally made contact with the company after filing my PPA. Great, cool. Completed a summary sheet with the general idea of the product, the industry, it impacts, and the possible solutions of the idea. Uh, with the way you describe that, that doesn't sound like a sell sheet. I was hesitant to provide the details, and I do not have a lawyer. How do I proceed if they come back and want to know more? You see, Ola's already worried, and she has, they haven't even come back, saying they're interested, but valid concern. How do I proceed if they come back and want to know more? Is it Well, first of all, if you don't get an attorney involved, that's the worst thing you can do. Is it reasonable to ask them to provide me an NDA? So our students move forward, and again, everything I shared tonight is not legal advice. So seek the service of an attorney if you're looking for legal advice. It's just business advice. Um, and get the advice of an attorney before you take action at any time. I just have to give that disclaimer. Um, for, is it reasonable to ask them for an NDA? You filed your provisional patent. If you ask every, just from a business standpoint, if you ask, if you had 25 companies and you insisted they all sign your NDA, you might get into three. Three might agree. That's, and they're not being dicks about that. So imagine um, your company get 100 new ideas a month and every inventor has a different NDA. You'd have to have a full-time attorney just to read them all, make sure they didn't put something in there that you own their company. So it's not practical. Sometimes they'll want you to sign their NDA. You need to read it, make sure it's okay. Usually it doesn't protect you. Usually it protects them. Sometimes it'll protect you. But usually they're perfectly fine to sign, but read it. Um, but your provisional patent is your protection. So, But companies, think about it. they got to read through this NDA. It's putting a brick wall instead of just being able to send the sell sheet and have them look at it. So, But the part that I'm really concerned about is you completed a summary sheet with a general idea of the product. General idea of the product? No. Um, and not being critical, I'm just saying, and if you listen to what I'm saying now and you're like, oh, I better rework that and resend it, totally do it. If you rework your marketing material and then you resend it, they won't get mad at you. That's perfectly fine. You can go back to companies you sent to before and do that. But you wrote, uh, you completed a summary sheet with a general idea of the product, the industry it impacts. What do you mean? Like if you have a kitchen gadget, you show them the marketing for the kitchen gadget. You don't need to show them the industry it impacts. It's their industry because you're only reaching out to companies in that industry. You don't need to tell them about their industry. Don't tell them about their industry. They know their industry. Just do good marketing. And the possible solutions to the idea. I was hesitant to provide the details, uh, and I don't have a, a lawyer. So, um, I mean, I'll be biased. You know, working with us and having our negotiation coach, Paul, help you through getting interest, you know, when you have interest, way better than a licensing attorney. Licensing attorneys try to nitpick deals to death to get more billable, billable hours. Then before you know it, you have a dead deal, and they still have a bill from the licensing attorney. They can charge two, three, four dollars an hour, and they don't know how to do deals. And especially on those earlier earlier calls, you know, 
they're not deal makers. They're licensing attorneys. They could review a final licensing contract. That's what we use them for, like a final one with all the deal points worked out. But to get them involved in talks about prototypes and let's get some quotes in China, they don't know how to handle that. And that is the most important part of a licensing negotiation, the part before the contract. There's all sorts of asking them questions about the product and how, what they're going to do with it and stuff that you're going to use in the negotiation later. And people don't understand that. And licensing attorneys are not the right people. I'm sure there's a few out there that could do it and do it well, but they're not the right people to be doing that, in my opinion. Um, so, uh, yeah, you're welcome for the advice. I, I, I appreciate the question. It's great. But I'm really concerned with the way you explain on what you sent. It sounds doesn't sound like a sell sheet. doesn't sound like a one-page advertisement for your product. And so let me clarify. When you send something to a company, it's an advertisement for their customer, okay? So you're not saying how you're going to make millions. You're not telling them about their industry. You're not doing any of that. So if it's, um, if it's a new waffle griddle or something, you know, you're showing how they would market to their customer, okay? That's it. If there's anything about the industry or any other details, you put that in the email. You don't put that in your marketing piece, okay? So great, great question. Hopefully that was helpful. And don't worry if you're like, look back and you're like, oh, crap, I, I messed up. Just work on a good marketing piece. Send it to them when you have it done. You probably won't have it done for a week or two maybe if you've got to think on that. And they don't worry. Just say, I reworked my marketing, and can you take a quick one-minute look at it? Okay. Um, uh, Tanya said, how much does a patent search cost? Um, it's not, it depends on what you're getting. So a lot, of, quite often you'll see patent searches for $500 and they're half-assed searches with, um, that aren't, aren't thorough. I think it really makes sense to do a worldwide search, um, definitely. So I, I, I would say, you know, 700 to 1,000 to do a good one. Um, don't think because I paid for a patent search and people use those words, it's the same thing. So, and again, the patent searcher is only as good as the information you give them. If you don't give them good information, they don't fully understand the product, it's not going to be a good patent search. So I think you should always do a worldwide search if you're going to do a search because it doesn't cost that much more. But when people just say patent search, you can get them for $500, but quite often they're very poor. Um, so make sure you go with somebody that's, that's good. Um, we do those. You can come to us but, or go to anybody, but don't think they're all created equal. Okay. Um, Sean says, you and Stephen kick ass. Thank you, Sean. Um, Tanya says, should I hire a patent agent? I don't know what you mean by patent agent. You know, I, I told a European gentleman this the other day. He was in Australia. He said, I'm a patent agent or lurking on becoming a patent agent. I'm like, oh, okay, so what do you what do you charge for patents? He's like, what do you mean? And for what he meant by patent agent is somebody that would represent an inventor to sell the patent. But I said, no, in the U.S., there's, there's a patent attorney that can write patents and they can also go to court because they're an attorney. But there's something called a patent agent that um, they can write patents, but they're not an attorney. They get certified by the patents, um, the U United States Patent Trademark Office. They can write patents, but they can't go to court. And that's what I usually refer to as a patent agent. 
if you're referring to um, uh, an agent to represent you and sell your product, you're, you're just going to find an endless list of shysters. Um, most of these companies will say they want you to give them 10 or 12 grand. They'll say, um, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll work on it for you. We have contacts. They always say, well, you have contacts. We'll do all the work. You don't have to do anything. And then a year later, you got nothing to show for it. A lot of them, you ask them who they're calling. Oh, we can't share that. That's confidential. I don't even know if they called anybody. Some of them will share who they reached out to. I, we talked between myself and Sylvia and Eli, who are um, talk to people interested in our one-on-one coaching program. Every other day, at the very least, we talk to somebody who's been taken for 10 or 12 grand. And in tw- this, this is telling. This is very telling. In 21 years, I have never met an inventor. The 14 years I ran my inventors group, the 21 years I've been doing right, that has had an invention promotion company license their product. That's how the Federal Trade Commission and and um, the Patent Office referred to them as invention promotion companies. Now, you should really go to inventorfraud.com and learn about how those companies work. So, Tanya, in my biased opinion, you either do it yourself or you don't do it at all. But if you try to get somebody to do it for you, um, you, you probably just have a light wallet and nothing to show for it. So that's that's just been my experience. I'm just speaking from my personal experience. Um, and that's pretty big sample size of experience. Um, okay, uh, 2020. And by the way, type your name in if you don't want me to say your handle, but 2020 is kind of a good handle. Um, how do I approach companies without having my invention idea stolen? How do I make sure to get licensed first time? I don't have a patent yet. Okay. So first of all, 2020, you don't need a patent. Just spend 70 bucks, 75 bucks on a provisional patent. Gives you years, say patent pending, fish off the pier. Don't make that mistake. Don't run out and spend 10 grand on a patent when you don't need to. Now you need to get a, a patent within a year and then you'll reference the provisional, but you won't, you won't need a year to see if the, lay, the idea is legs. You can do that all within the year. Okay, so huge benefit there. Um, how do I approach companies without having my invention idea stolen? In 21 years, um, we haven't had one of our students have an idea stolen that I've been aware of. Um, and I think it's because our students conduct themselves professionally. I have talked to inventors that say they got ripped off. Sometimes I ask them some questions and I realize they didn't get ripped off. Like I talked to a, uh, an inventor, I think it was a couple months back, and he said, this company stole my idea. And I said, well, why, why do you think that? Well, I showed it to him three weeks ago, and they already have it up on their website. And I'm like, uh, dude, they can't launch a product and put it up on their website in three weeks. I mean, just... I know some people just aren't logical. It blows my mind. Um, and, and I'm like, dude, you didn't get ripped off. They were already working on something similar. That's why they told you we're already working on something similar. Because <laughs> they cannot launch a product and put it up on their website in three weeks. That would be nuts. Um, it was actually in the marketplace and selling even. You know, it, it boggles my mind sometimes. But, and then I talked to a few inventors. They, they, they got the company interested. They got them moving forward. Company spent a bunch of money moving forward, doing prototypes, actually doing a bunch of stuff. And then the inventor asked for a quarter million up front or some whacked out amount up front. You want to backload the deal, not front load it. You get paid as they make money. A lot of these companies are investing a lot of money and not all products are successful. So they're taking all the risk. So if it fails, it's all there on them, right? It's not going to cost you anything. And you're going to get the product back too because you never – sell your idea, you rent or you lease it. 
if the company doesn't perform, you get it back. You're never selling your, people always say, I want to sell my patent. No, you don't. You, you want to do a licensing agreement. You're renting or leasing it. If they don't perform, you want to get that back. The thought that you can sell your product outright is, is, is garbage. Um, on, on some rare cases, it might make sense, but it's extremely rare. Um, now, if you have a company and you're manufacturing a product and you have distribution in 10,000 stores and inventory, okay, you sell your company plus get a royalty deal. But if you just have an idea, which most of our students do, and they do licensing deals all the time, you, 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 you're not selling your idea. You're renting or leasing it because they have to perform. And companies don't always perform. I mean, not everybody that licenses a product, you know, the product goes like gangbusters, or maybe it just does okay, or maybe it does just really so-so, or maybe they, they pull it after a year or two. That's possible. So um, let's see, where was that question? Um, how do I make sure to get it licensed the first time? I, you, you do and say everything right, but not every, no inventor on the face of the planet is going to license every single product they work on. That's unrealistic. Um, so you may license, you may not, and that's why we always teach our students to keep their costs low. So you have the bandwidth to move on the next one. And even if you get 30 no's, if you believe in it and they give you non-specific no's, I would just reach back out to all the same people six or eight months later. We get students licensed up all the time that way because they're just people like you and me. They're not companies. They're people looking at this. Individuals are going to decide if they want to reach out to you or not. And they're just busy. And they give you non-specific, kind of like not at this time, not a right match for us because they're too busy. But you reach out to them six or eight months later. They said no. Most inventors would never do this. And you resend it to them. And like two weeks earlier, you get lucky and their boss said, we need new products. And now the same person that said no is now showing interest. Okay? You don't even mention you sent it to them before. And you said, so if you really believe in it, you don't, you don't ditch it. Go ahead and send it again. Not two weeks later, like six or eight months later if you got rejected by like 30 companies, you know, every company said no. So um, 2020, you know, if, um, so, you know, you may license that first product, but it may be later and you move on to other products, right? So that's just real. We need to be real with this stuff. We are, we are always very real and invent right about this stuff. Um, uh, Sean, I have a, Question, I have a list of product ideas, but most I don't have a prototype for. You don't need it most of the time. So if I went through your list, Sean, I would say, oh, okay, that one, that one, that one, you don't need prototypes for. Oh, these two, okay, maybe you do need to do it to prove it to yourself, to uh, refine the product more. But these other ones, pretty obvious. Just get a virtual prototype done. Or go to the store, cannibalize something. That's your prototype if it looks good in the picture, okay? Um, so that's okay, Sean, you know, and maybe pick one of those that you don't need a prototype for, you know, but maybe but you, people don't know how to evaluate that. I understand that. I get that. And it's not like Sean can show me his products in front of everybody right now. And I could say I could easily do that, like in a heartbeat, like I could go, okay, that one you need one for that one. You don't, that one you don't, that one you don't. And most of the time I would say you don't, but it's not all the time, not all the time. It's not sometimes when we do this YouTube shows, like we'll say things, and people will come back, well, well, Stephen or Andrew said this on a show. I'm like, it's not that black and white. Sometimes there's shades of gray here, guys, and you need to take a look at the specific product, the specific instance. But when we do that with one of our students, when a coach does that with one of our students, they're getting the context, and they can actually apply that reasoning and that logic to other products. And there's no way we can do that unless we made a fictitious product, and then I talked about it and stuff like that. And even then, people might make inferences. But when we do that kind of coaching, um, 
it really, we're teaching people how to fish. Um, we're not just helping people license their first product. We're teaching people how to fish. That's what we're companies all about. And we're empowering them so they can say, I get it. I don't need you guys anymore. That's what we do with our coaching. Um, let's see. Uh, Raul, is it possible to license different versions of a product? Absolutely. Um, a high-end version, a low-end version, a di version for different markets. As I always say on these Q and A's, as long as the licensees aren't step, the companies aren't stepping on each other's toes, you don't want. You're not going to license two companies selling the exact same shelf at Walmart. Makes no sense. But if one's selling at Walmart, another one's selling uh, for a commercial application. Like let's say you come up with this vacuum cleaner invention, right? And you pitch it, and Dyson buys it, or um, yeah, what's another vacuum cleaner company? Um, I can't remember. I can't remember another uh, Hoover. Okay, God, uh, Hoover buys it or something. And you put in the licensing agreement that you can license this for commercial use, for like you know commercial vacuum cleaners that janitors use. They'll probably be like, oh, we're not in that market. Okay. And then you go and you find a company that makes commercial vacuum cleaners. You do have a different version. It's going to be beefy. It's going to be out of metal instead of plastic. That sort of thing. Absolutely, you can do that. It doesn't always apply. It applies only a percentage of the time, but absolutely. You can also license in different geographies or different distribution channels. Again, if they're not stepping on each other's toes, two companies, fine. If they're selling the exact same place, doesn't make any sense. Um, uh, Caleb, I want to modify an existing item and then resell it to the public. Will there be an issue with the original manufacturer. Um, I don't know. Caleb, I would have to know what the product is. You know, I mean, first off, one thing that I can say is a lot of patents aren't, a lot of products aren't patented. So, you know, you see like, if you see like 10 companies doing this thing and there's no, and there's probably no patent on it because everybody's doing that. Now, one guy might have that item Say it's a vacuum cleaner, but it has this additional thing. They got a patent on that additional thing. Can't do that additional thing, but the base product, anybody can do. So if you see a ton of people doing it, Caleb, you're, and you're not in violation of this other person, this other company's product, and you want to change it up for a different purpose, can you do that? Yeah, as long as you're not violating any of their patents, you can definitely do that. Um, done pretty, pretty often. Um, uh, Tanya, I felt the same way you did. I learned, okay, she's speaking to somebody else. I learned so much from EventRite TV. It changed the game for me. Watch as many videos there as you can. You'll feel a lot less overwhelmed. Oh, okay. So Delivery Girl is saying to Tanya, saying that. We'll watch more EventRite videos. Yeah, I, I don't think necessarily it's, you know, a video can't say, okay, Tanya, for your um, uh, kitchen gadget, do this because it's not it's one-way communication you know this is a little better than our regular youtube recorded shows but it's one-way communication but it does calm a lot of those worries down like oh but then now i'm worried about this and then you watch some bunch of youtube shows oh they address that great and and then but then there will always be something else but it, 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 delivery girl tanya is saying that it'll it'll calm a lot of those fears down and maybe give you enough confidence to do it on your own or if you're not confident enough then um then you can sign up for a coaching if that works for you. But uh, thank you, Delivery Girl. It's very nice of you to say that. 
that our videos were that helpful. Um, Chase says, what do you recommend for product ideas that are so novel that you're not sure the industry or category, it, it, it not sure what industry or category it fits into? Well, I can tell you, Chase, from doing this for 21 years, um, I could tell you what category it fit into with no problem. I've never had a student where we couldn't figure that out, nor every single one of our coaches could look at a product and tell you where it's going to fit. Now, what they might do, which is what we do with coaching, because they're not a consultant. Consultant's a dirty word to me. Consultant is somebody that strings you off for more billable hours and makes you dependent on them. When we coach and mentor people, we're trying to make, empower people and make them independent of us. So a coach wouldn't say if they had enough information in an area, they would make a judgment. But they might say, well, I need to collect this and this and this for me. Bring that on back. Let's take a look at it, and then we'll figure it out. So a good coach will not just say, oh, I like this. That doesn't mean crap. Oh, I like this. It's like, well, let's look at the marketplace. Let's look at all the um, the frying pans. Let's look at all the barbecue spatulas. Let's look at all the wine bottle openers. Let's make some observations and let's figure it out. That's and they're going to push you to do that. So um, figuring out what category or who you would approach is something that a lot of people struggle with. I'll tell you that, Chase. People really struggle with that. So I don't think you're all alone there. But it's something that you can only do through experience. And so when we do coaching, it's experiential learning. You're talking to a coach, and they're guiding you with your particular product, and you're feeling it, and you're experiencing it. Um, and, and our students experience that. But without looking at your product, I couldn't say. But I can tell you 100%, there's nothing you could show me that I wouldn't say, oh, it would fit over here or here. Might be a little brainstorming involved if it's difficult. Don't get me wrong, or maybe research that, come back. Oh, now I know. Okay, let's do this sort of thing. But um, yeah, that's that's tough. I, I um, it, it is hard sometimes. Um, Tanya says I haven't really seen my idea. Not for the public, not for the specific industry. I've already made rough prototypes and have pictures. Um, well. Tanya is saying you haven't really seen it and doing a couple hour search on Google Images, Google Shopping, and Amazon are two different things. You haven't seen it. Now, I'm just giving you a hard time for the way you phrased it, but that's not good enough. You need to spend at least two hours looking at everything in the space of your invention. And again, remember at the top of the hour I said the goal is not to prove that it doesn't exist. You need to not have blinders on when you're looking at all these other products. You might go, oh, I could tweak my product a little bit, make it a little like this, a little like this, or accommodate these people over here. So it's not you're not trying to prove your product doesn't exist. That's what most inventors try to do. That's a mistake. It's an amateur mistake. Don't make it. So if that's one thing you guys get tonight, that's a, that's a great tip. But um, So keep doing some searching, Tanya, if you haven't. Maybe you already have, and that's fine if you have. But, you know, these questions I use as learning experiences. So I like it when people phrase it a certain way that I can. I'm not correcting you specifically. I'm just correcting a thought process so you guys can see the thought process. So this isn't one-on-one -on -one coaching, of course, but so I've got to do it a little bit differently. Um, Sean, jeez, uh, <coughs> oh, drink some water here. Sean says, if I have... One product good for two markets, and the product goes into into exclusivity. Can I still go to license it to a different market? So that's what people don't understand. You can 
a lot, you can licensing agreements. There are no rules, guys. I mean, there's plenty of rules that we follow, but there are no rules. If you want to break out a territory, a geography, a different version, a different market, and as long as your licensee, the manufacturer you license to, is okay with that, and then you can license somebody else over here. It's whatever you can negotiate. You know, so absolutely you can do that, uh, Sean. Absolutely, but it's something that you worry about when you get into the deal with the first company. You know, if you have two markets. You know, quite often when I was a coach uh, back in the day, I was our only coach. Now we got 10 coaches and a negotiation coach, but I was the original coach. And um, I would analyze those two markets and I go, ooh, start with market number two and then go to number one because it might be a different sell sheet. It might be a whole different list of companies. I got 20 companies over here and 25 for this one, you know, and it's two different sell sheets. It's basically like you're working on two different products. So I would advise them on which of those two markets to go for first because I didn't want them to get overwhelmed, work on two projects out of the gate because that can be overwhelming for a new inventor, and then go to the next one. And then, you know, you work it out when, if you get interest from a company on, number, on one project and you work out those deal points. It's a good, it's a good problem to have, Sean. It's a good problem to have because it means you're doing a licensing deal for one. Um, uh, Zavia, where's the best place to research materials you want to use for your invention? <clears throat> you know, without knowing the specific product, Zavia, I can't answer that, but I can give you a, a general answer. Um, most of the time, you don't need to. Um, if you can look at similar products and go, oh, they, they make things out of plastic, and, and then also there's a little bit of rubber, and I know that Mike can do the same. What research do you need to do? You could actually tell the company. Like, look at that Tupperware lid. You know, I want to make it rubber on this part and plastic on this part, and you know it can be done. You know, that sort of thing. Um, but with that said, sometimes you do need research materials. I'm not saying you don't. Um, uh, you know, you, you can go on uh, Alibaba. You can go on a lot of different websites and, and just research materials. I wouldn't recommend giving them the whole product. And uh, you can even get some quotes. You know, um, maybe you need a different kind of Velcro or or something like that. Um, Alibaba's a good place. Thomas Register's like super ancient and old. Um, but the question is, do you need to? You know, or can you make observations about these same materials and other products and go, oh, well, that thing's selling for $9.95 and it has about the same amount of materials that mine would have. So, you know, you usually do a five-time markup. That's a really gross way of doing it. But if it's $10 and selling for 10, they probably made it for about two. So, and you're like, oh, well, mine's going to sell for about, I think I can, the perceived value is going to be about 20, so I'm good with with that. Now, I don't know if you're talking about materials research on functionality of a particular material. or the, You can look at a lot of existing products in the marketplace, cannibalize products, play with products, look at the material and see if that's going to work. And when they ask you, you don't need to know the name of that kind of rubber. And when a company shows a lot of interest and you get deep into talking with them about the product, you could send them that other product and go, well, I think it should be this rubber. I have no idea what kind of rubber this is, but I'll, I'll mail it to you sort of thing. So I'm trying to, with my answer, keep it like on a really simple level that a lot of our students can get away with. Do you need to get more fancy with it? Yes. Would I need to know your specific invention and what your question is to get deep into it? Yes, I would. Um, so that's why it's kind of a general answer to help you guys realize you don't need as much as you think you do a lot of the time. I'm not saying you don't sometimes, okay? Um, 
Carlos, hi Andrew, what are your thoughts of companies that offer you to get a licensing deal and act as an agent once you have your PPA for a sum of money and a percentage of your royalties? So first off, um, I've talked to inventors that talk to these invention promotion companies and what they'll do is they'll say, we, oh, we, you know, we have the contacts, you don't have to do anything, we'll do all the work and they'll ask for 10 or 12 grand, that's the most common amount and we want 20% of your invention. So, but when you look at the track record of all these companies that I know, I've never met an inventor ever, ever, that's had an invention promotion company license their product, but about every other day, I talk to inventors that get taken for 10 or 12 grand. Okay, so that's my personal experience with, it, with those types of companies. Um, so the 20%, the oh, we want 20% of the invention, it's just a sales tactic to make you believe they care and they're actually gonna work on your project, okay? So don't think if they want a percentage, plus they're asking for 10 grand, that they're really into the project, they might just be into the 10 grand and then they just pretend to work on it for a year and a year later you got nothing to show for it. So I don't think much at all about them is the answer and we're the exact opposite of them. We're gonna make you do the freaking work if you become a student of ours and we're gonna guide you at every little step, hold your hand through the whole thing but we don't want an inventor that says, I got an idea, but I want to do any work. Don't come to us. You shouldn't even be on this chat if you don't want to do work. Um, you will not find somebody to do it for you. You won't. Um, and if people are charging for it, I, I haven't seen anybody be successful with that. Um, I'm not saying that because we sell coaching. I'm saying because it's true. Go to inventorfraud.com. Go to the Federal Trade Commission. You'll see endless complaints. It's estimated, I think I've heard some numbers, estimated to be a billion-dollar business ripping off inventors. Not your idea. They don't care about your idea. You can have a lump of coal, and they'll take your money. So that's, that's, that's the way it works. Um, so be very, very careful about that. Um, it's, it's sad. Uh, it used to really bother me when Steve and I got in this business like 20, 20 years ago. And then I realized there's nothing I can do about it. We can just help people that want to help themselves. I can't help people that don't want to do any work. I can't help those people. Um, now, at the same time, I understand you're new. You've got an idea. You're like, well, this company says that's what they do. And they say they like my idea. And they have connections. And I get it. Uh, but if you Google most of these companies, space complaints or ripoff or scam, most of these companies, you see pages and pages of complaints. I have no idea why people don't do that. In this day and age, there's no excuse for that because they didn't want to hear it. They're just like, la, 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 la. They said they could sell it. I don't want to know. Um, there's no excuse for getting ripped off these days. Um, uh, huh? Renee says, also he said you have to watch out on how you word your provisional patent because it could hurt you if you file a patent and in his charge $1,000 for it. I don't know what that means, Renee. Um, so, you know, you can, you can add things that you didn't have in your provisional later to your, your patent. You're covered, if you filed a provisional 10 months ago and you do a licensing deal, get the company to give you the money for the, for the, um, for the patent, you give that to your patent attorney. Your patent attorney is going to write a patent, and they're going to write it how they want to write it. Now, they're going to cite the provisional patent. So if ever that one year is an issue, 
you can go back to that provisional and say, oh, no, it was in the provisional before the patent was filed, and you'll be protected for that, okay? So, yes, it is important what you put in there, but we teach our students not to get obsessive about that, but doing things like including the variations, workaround improvements, not having limited language. We have a software called Smart IP that is included with our coaching program, but you can buy it all a cart separately as well, and that will help you. Um, I've had, talked to a bunch of people that were on this live Q&A chat that bought it, and they, they told, I talked to them, and they said that they found that really helpful. So, um, yeah, but people worry too much. They just worry too much about getting ripped off. And it, here's the deal. If you don't show your product to companies, you rip yourself off. And it's a thousand times more common that inventors rip themselves off out of their own fears than they get ripped off by companies. So our students do and say everything right. And I think that's why I've never seen one of our students get ripped off because few, because there are three uh, companies out there that will do it. The three or 4% that might mess with you, they don't mess with you and they see you know you got your act together. You know, emails are thorough, not long rambling emails, nice sell sheet. You conduct yourself well on the phone. You're not the wacky inventor a year ago that this unscrupulous company might go, well, this guy didn't know what he's doing. We'll just go ahead and do it. You know, so I think the point I'm trying to make is conducting yourself professionally is a form of protection. It's a huge form of protection. Don't don't be fooled. It really is. If you look like you don't know what you're doing, um, that's not good. It isn't. But to look like you know what you're doing is not that hard. It, it's not that hard. Um, but if you're acting like a wacky inventor, it increases your chances of getting knocked off by that 3 or 4%. That's not a statistic, by the way. I just randomly making that up. That might consider knocking you off. Uh, let's see. I don't know, Stephen, you said I missed a question of yours, but I don't see it. I don't see your question. So maybe it didn't get in there. So Stephen Alperter, uh, I didn't see it, or I missed it. No, I don't see it there. So, um, uh, Walid says, "Hi Andrew, thanks for your great help. Can I print the sell sheet and send it with ordinary mail? Because usually when making a call, I found a recorded message." You can. It's very old school. We've been around 21 years, so that's how people were sending it before quite often. But you really want to attach it as a PDF attached to an email. Um, our students don't send mail sell sheets anymore. might get their attention, but it might not ever get to them. You can, but I would, I would email it, definitely. Well, and he's saying he left a voicemail. He didn't get a reply. Yeah, you're not going to get a reply to most voicemails, to be honest with you. Um, you might ask the gatekeeper for uh, the person's email. Maybe they'll give it to you. Maybe they won't. Like, here's the part that you need to get used to with licensing. Like, so let's say only one in four times you ask the gatekeeper for the marketing manager's email, but they give it to you. Well, that's great. One in four times they give it to you and three times they don't. No, no, no. I can just put you to his voicemail. Well, you should do that every time then, you know, but people don't like hearing no. So you should always, you should go back and you should ask for their email. Waleed, maybe this is, that's not a statistic, by the way. I don't know what the stats are when you ask for the email, but let's say it's that one time out of four that they, that they give it to you. So I would ask for the email address. Um, also, it's not that hard to kind of guess at what their email address is. So you first name dot last name at, XYZ company or first initial dot last name at XYZ company 
Um, there's a website, emailchecker.com, I think is our email checker. Um, and you can type in a couple email addresses and then it'll validate it for you. And you go, oh, that's their email. And then you can just drop them an email directly. Um, so there's a fun little tip. We were sharing that with our students on, um, on Thursday. Uh, Aaron, what are your thoughts on getting into licensing with the medical industry for low-end medical devices? Well, first of all, I like, I like low-end. I'll tell you why in a minute. Is it, is it hard to get into because of red tape, or do you think it's worth pursuing? I don't know what you mean by low-end, but medical uh, companies are a little bit uh, more patent-obsessed than like a kitchen gadget company, without a doubt. They, they care more about the patent. Now, not all medical is the same. I mean, if you got a new um, CPAP machine or something, that's one kind of medical. Um, or it's a product that's mass manufactured like Band-Aids. Okay, those, those are difficult. A new CPAP machine, a new Band-Aid, a uh, new this or that. But then there's medical like kind of gray area where it's just like products for seniors, which isn't really medical, but like a little stick where you helps the senior pick something from the top shelf or something maybe a little more medical type of cane or a walker or something like that. That's not the same kind of medical as a new CPAP machine or a Band-Aid, okay? Those are harder. They care more about patents. If it's a new walker or a cane, that's not the medical medical. It's not the, it's not the um, high-tech medical, okay? High-tech medical, so I like what you're saying. With the low-end medical, I, I, that's, if it's what I'm thinking you're saying, that's better, that's good. You know, it's like something that's gonna show up in like one of these senior catalogs um, or a medical supply store or something like that. Um, and then that's different than the high tech stuff. The high tech stuff is harder. That's harder. You definitely do it, but um, it's harder. Uh, let's see. Uh, I can't even pronounce this. Farfalius. Uh, if if a product would be sold separately, would I make a separate PPA? For it, no. If it's related, you could usually roll that in the same PPA. That's not legal advice. I, I can't know without knowing what the product is. But if it's related, I'd throw it into one PPA. Some people go, "Well, oh, I got like three different versions of the product. You know, should I do three PPAs?" I'm like, "No, no. Just put it in the same PPA. It's not. That's that's just a waste of money and time." Um, o White says the company provided me the sheet and questions they wanted. However, I do have a summary sheet selling the advantages of the product. Company provided me the sheet and questions they wanted. Oh, okay. Well, that's fine. If a company provided, that's really weird. Questions they wanted answered. I mean, a sell sheet's always going to sell. Like I talked to somebody the other day, and they said, "Well, Andrew, this website has nowhere where I can uh, the portal. Like it's a company, and they there was no place on their submission page where I could upload my sell sheet." And I said, well, what's on, on the submission page? Oh, well, I tell, describe your product. I'm like, that's ridiculous. Like to verbally write and describe your product. I said, drop it in a Dropbox. If you don't know what Dropbox is, look it up. It's free. Drop it in a Dropbox, copy the Dropbox link, then paste it in as a link into the description box and say, here's my sell sheet. You'll get it in 60 seconds. You know, that, that's what you want to do there. So, um, you know, 
I do have a summary selling the advantages of the product. Yeah, so I can't know without looking at it, oh, white, but thank you for that feedback. Appreciate it. Um, and Shaw says, thank you, Andrew. You are consistent. Yes, we're, we're, we're very consistent. I mean, we've been doing this for 20 years. We're really solid. I'm very proud of that. Um, people depend on us. Um, and Stephen and I and, and the entire company and all our coaches take that very seriously. And um, I, uh, I'm very proud of what we've done, whether it's the YouTube show or this live chat or the one-on-one -on -one coaching that you can find out more about on EventRite or our Academy group coaching program. Um, but if you guys want to know more about EventRite, go to inventright.com. We do do coaching. We do one-on-one -on -one coaching and we're doing it. You think we'd be good at it after 21 years. I, I think we are. I think we're, sounds arrogant, but we, we are the best in the world, hands down. Yeah, it's kind of a niche, but we are the best in the world. And it's really cool out of arrogance or pride or however, whatever reason you want to give for me saying that, it's true. And I truly believe it. And we have really great coaches. They're really good people. They're very smart. They're very helpful people. Um, I have some students that have licensed five, six products. I wouldn't ask them to be a coach. Our coaches really understand licensing. And also, they're super helpful people. So they're really not that much different than myself. Um, if you guys are saying that I'm helpful. So if you think I'm helpful, the coaches are equally helpful. It, it feels a little different, though. When you're doing one-on-one -on -one coaching, it's a different vibe. You're like really like they're speaking directly to you and your product. That's exciting. It's different than this live chat. But, um, but they're really good people. And our, our students are really good people, too. And we filter folks, though. We don't want just anybody to sign up either. Um, if people have... Uh, crazy expectations or don't have a good work ethic or um, we, as long as people have the desire and and a decent work ethic we can help them um, it doesn't matter if they have a business background or if they're techie or non-techie I mean our our students are from zero business background uh, maybe serious lack of education all the way to super educated like a former CEO of a major Fortune 500 company that's now retired and trying to license and everybody in between. Um, that is our students and we're able to help that very wide range of people. And what's nice with the one-on-one -on -one coaching is we can instantly jump to their level wherever they are. That's what's nice about it. Anyway, I remind you guys all to take care, keep inventing, and we'll catch up with you next time. See you guys. Bye.